All right, welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. And uh, boy, have we got some ranting to do today. You know, I have been uh, kind of dreading having to um, comment on the whole Elon Omar affair. But uh, nonetheless, I've sort of decided that it's incumbent upon me to do so because it seems that so many people out there are just kind of not getting it on both sides of the question, as is all too frequently the case. And as I am uh, about to embark on my rant right now on March 16th, of course, we just had the absolutely horrific events in Christchurch, New Zealand, just uh, the day before yesterday, which are loaning far more urgency to um, the whole question. The ghastly massacre at two mosques in Christchurch by a white supremacist gunman, which mirrors all too precisely the um, massacre which we witnessed at a synagogue in Pittsburgh back in October, also at the hands of a white supremacist gunman. Eleven dead in Pittsburgh back in October. Fifty dead in Christchurch just two days ago. Now, if this is not evidence of how fundamentally unified the questions of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are. I don't know what could possibly make it any clearer. And yet, already we are seeing ugly manifestations just in the immediate 48-hour aftermath of the massacre in Christchurch, seeing ugly manifestations of how the people who are concerned with Islamophobia and the people who are concerned with anti-Semitism are being pitted against each other, despite the fact that they face identical enemies. And I'll even point out, return to this question later on in the rant, that even the very language that we use to describe these phenomena is contested. And some people object to the phrase anti-Semitism altogether. And some people object to the phrase Islamophobia altogether. I don't know how deep we're going to get into the whole semantic question, but I'm just going to state from the beginning that I'm just going to use the commonly accepted phrases. You could say Jew hatred. You could say Muslim hatred. I'm just going to go with the commonly accepted phrases, recognizing the controversies about them, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And the manifestation of how those concerned with one and those concerned with the other are being pitted against each other, despite the fact that, once again, these are fundamentally unified concerns, you would think has just uh, come to light in the controversy over Chelsea Clinton. And, you know, I'm frequently put into the position of having to defend the Clintons, even though, you know, I find them thoroughly odious. I mean, I'll just confess it right now. I find the Clintons, just the whole family to be odious. I mean, the whole notion of a political dynasty just uh, you know, rubs me the wrong way, and particularly a political dynasty which is you know, associated with their kind of boring and problematic centrism. But uh, the degree of you know, irrational hatred which the, the Clintons are targeted with, which is you know, completely out of proportion to anything that they've actually done, where you actually have people on the left who are you know, saying that you know, Trump was the lesser evil to Hillary— during the 2016 election, which is obviously a complete reversal of the truth. 
uh, means that I'm often put into the, um, the paradoxical and uncomfortable position of having to defend the Clintons, who, again, I find to be kind of odious. But uh, just today, Chelsea Clinton showed up at a, um, a vigil for those slain at Christchurch at New York University here in Lower Manhattan, just a couple of blocks away from where I'm ranting right now from my apartment in the East Village. And she was apparently met with a really angry, vociferous response from some of the people who were at the vigil who were accusing her of having, uh, you know, uh, contributed to the atmosphere that led to the to the massacre due to her criticisms of Representative Ilan Omar, who's going to be the the focus of what we're going to be talking about tonight. So uh, when I heard about this, I figured, my God, what could Chelsea have possibly said? which would win her this kind of reaction. She must have said something which is really egregious and something which, you know, just tarred all Muslims with the um, stigma of Jew hatred. So, um, you know, I traced back the sources and found the original tweets that sparked all of this. And apparently what Chelsea had done is she had retweeted a tweet from a woman by the name of Batya Ungar Sargon, a contributor to the Forward um, newspaper, who uh, wrote, Please learn how to talk about Jews in a non-anti-Semitic way. Sincerely, American Jews. <laughs> and uh, Chelsea added, co-signed as an American. We should expect all elected officials, regardless of party, and all public figures not to traffic in anti-Semitism. Now, this is a completely unoffending statement. I fail to see what one, it's re- really rather um, uncontroversial and obvious I really don't see what the um, how this could possibly be interpreted by any stretch of the imagination as somehow contributing to the situation that led to the massacre of 50 Muslims in their house of worship. It does not even mention Ilan Omar by name, although it's the obvious subtext. And even if you want to, you know, argue about, and ultimately that's what we're going to get into in this discussion, even if you want to argue about whether Omar's own tweets and own statements could be perceived as anti-Semitic, even if you want to argue about that, okay, that's an argument that you could have. But to say that, you know, this completely unoffensive statement saying that um, a political figure should not traffic in anti-Semitism is somehow contributing to uh, the atmosphere that led to the, the massacre in Christchurch, I mean, it's just, it's out of touch with reality. I just don't get it. Now, and in a lot of the responses that we've seen recently in the past two days now since the Christchurch massacre, rather than making, to me, what is the obvious connection to the Pittsburgh massacre back in October... A lot of people just seem to be forgetting that the Pittsburgh massacre even happened. Now, the Pittsburgh massacre was the clearest evidence that we have yet seen. And the evidence has been mounting by the mainstreaming of anti-Semitic discourse in this country. But the Pittsburgh massacre was the most unequivocal evidence that we have seen that the situation of Jews in the United States and in the world is far more precarious today than it was just a few years ago. Now, even after Pittsburgh, it is still not nearly as precarious as that of Muslims, blacks, Latin American immigrants, etc., who have been explicitly targeted by policy, being banned from entering the country, 
targeted for deadly police terror and being massively detained in the incipient concentration camp system, which is coming together in this country under President Trump. So even now, Jews have got a long way to go before their situation becomes nearly as precarious as the more traditionally stigmatized groups in this country, Muslims, blacks, Latin American immigrants. But I have to add here that it is not a contest. Having acknowledged that point, I have to add that it is not a contest, and there is no amount of ethnic or religious stigmatization that is acceptable. The next point I have to make before we actually get into the meat of the discussion, as it were, is that uh, automatically you start talking about anti-Semitism at all, and in many circles you are immediately perceived as a defender of Israel or a Zionist. And I have to make clear here that I am neither of those things. In fact, I am strongly anti-Zionist and have been my entire life since I was old enough to understand the issue at all. Now, everybody uh, you know, says that there's a difference between um, anti-Semitism and criticism of Israel's policies. And I have to make clear here that I do not just oppose Israel's policies. I oppose Israel. I oppose the state of Israel, which as a settler state cannot be other than an oppressive and usurping entity. And I oppose Zionism, which is the ideology and program of Jewish colonization of historic Palestine. I understand what Zionism is, unlike many who throw the word around willy-nilly as an all-purpose insult, so I know what I'm opposing. I am forthrightly and unequivocally anti-Zionist. I would like to see more talk about a single secular state for Jews and Arabs alike in historic Palestine, and ultimately I would like to hear more talk about a no-state solution, <laughs> given that I'm an anarchist. But meanwhile, before we get to any, you know, utopian designs, I support BDS. I support boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel as a means of pressuring Israel to, at the very minimum, withdraw to its legal borders and end the occupation of the West Bank and the siege of Gaza. But beyond that, to treat Arabs, to treat Palestinians and Bedouin within its own territories as equal citizens, which it currently does not. And to recognize their land rights and full civil rights as opposed to undermining and usurping them, which is what Israel is currently doing, even within its own borders, even within the Green Line, seen most egregiously with the land theft of the Bedouins in the Negev. So, the issue actually goes beyond the occupation. It goes to the very roots of the Jewish state, which I oppose, just as I would oppose a Christian state here in the United States. But I have to also emphasize that a part of my anti-Zionism is utter commitment to opposing anti-Semitism here in the diaspora. Here in New York City, where I live, and in the United States and around the world, and if that makes me a minority of one, so be it. Because inevitably, on this question, you have the people who are concerned with anti-Semitism, and they uh, treat their um, criticism of Israel, as the phrase goes, as a mere afterthought. And then you have got the critics of Israel 
who treat their opposition to anti-Semitism as a mere afterthought, mentioning it with a, you know, a certain sense of lip service at best. And I reject both of those stances as hypocritical and cowardly. My opposition to Zionism and my opposition to anti-Semitism are both at the core of my identity as a leftist Jew from New York. Neither is an afterthought. And I am in deadly earnest about opposing Zionism, and I am in deadly earnest about opposing anti-Semitism. All right, the next thing that has to be said before uh, we get to Elon Omar's actual comments is that I recognize that there are very, very deep double standards on this whole question. For starters, the complete lack of outrage at the ugly demonization of Elon Omar on the basis of her religion and ethnicity. Immediately prior to the most recent controversy regarding her statements, we saw this ugly episode at the West Virginia State House where some propaganda was posted equating Representative Omar to Al-Qaeda terrorists who were behind the attack on 9-11, which of course took place when she was in grade school merely on the basis of her religion. Now, this should have sparked far more outrage than it actually did. And needless to say, I protest that kind of sinister propaganda in the strongest possible terms. And then, regarding anti-Semitism itself, it sparked such uh, an outrage when something which could be interpreted as anti-Semitic is mouthed by Ilan Omar, and practically no outrage when it comes from the other side of the aisle, when it comes from the Republicans. And it's been particularly sickening to see Donald Trump himself making hay out of the whole Elon Omar controversy. There was one uh, opinion piece by one Mark Lander in the New York Times who noted this. He writes, and I quote, But Donald Trump has been accused repeatedly of trafficking in anti-Semitic tropes. His 2016 campaign tweeted out an image of Hillary Clinton in front of a Jewish star over a pile of money. His final campaign ad railed against global special interest, quote-unquote, as the faces of George Soros, Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs, and the Federal Reserve Chairman Janet Yellen, all Jewish, crossed the scene. In 2015, Mr. Trump told members of the Republican Jewish Coalition, quote, You're not going to uh, support me because I don't want your money. You want to control your politicians. That's fine, end quote. So uh, good for Mark Lander writing in the New York Times to call out Trump on his hypocrisy, trying to make hay of uh, Omar's comments when he is engaged in equivalent or worse comments. Far worse, you could argue. And is also trafficked in anti-Semitic tropes. And yet, I'm almost reluctant to even point it out because the knee-jerk response on on the left is always to point to the anti-Semitism on the right, just like the knee-jerk response on the right is to point to the anti-Semitism on the left. Neither position is honest. Neither position is courageous. Both positions are a cop-out. Take responsibility for getting your own house in order. And my house is that of the left, even if I feel more alienated from it every day. (laughs) Another example, however, some commentators have been astute enough to point out 
House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of the Republicans back in October tweeted, quote, we cannot allow Soros, Steyer, and Bloomberg to buy, capital letters, this election. Get out and vote, Republican November 6th, MAGA. So that's a reference, of course, to George Soros, Tom Steyer, and Michael Bloomberg, three prominent Jews who were significant donors to the uh, to Democratic campaigns. So this is engaging in precisely the same myth or stereotype or trope or whatever you want to call it about, you know, powerful Jews using their money to buy influence that Omar engaged in. And yet we heard significantly less about it. And the Republicans have themselves been so hypocritical as to gang up on Omar while ignoring McCarthy's comments, which were practically identical. All right, getting to, uh, to Omar's actual comments. About two weeks ago now, speaking at a, uh, at a bookstore get-together in Washington, D.C., she said, quote, I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it's okay for people to push for allegiance to a foreign country. And I want to ask why it's okay for me to talk about the influence of the NRA or fossil fuel industries or big pharma and not talk about a powerful lobby that is influencing policy. And then she goes on to, uh, you know, anticipate that she's going to be accused of hate for standing up and says, I know what hate looks like. And notes that there are um, in her home state of Minnesota, there are, uh, you know, she's seen signs in, um, in gas stations reading assassinate Elon Omar. And there's no need to elaborate on the fact that that's utterly abhorrent and to be thoroughly opposed and brought to the public's attention far more than it has been, obviously. But if Elon Omar is sensitive to the question of that kind of hate being targeted against ethnic and religious groups, she should be a little bit more aware of her own language. And she should be aware that she, with these comments was trading, if cluelessly, and reading her behavior, I do think that it was kind of clueless, to tell you the truth. I think that she's just repeating a lot of rhetoric which has, you know, just sort of been in the air and become mainstreamed over the past generation. But nonetheless, repeating rhetoric and propaganda that demonizes Jews and has been used to justify genocide. Now, you have to understand the way the propaganda works. Her defenders have made the point that she was talking about demands that are being made on Congress members, not talking about Jews per se. But who is making the demands on the Congress members? The way the propaganda system, and it is a propaganda system against Jews, which is at work and has been at work throughout the modern era in the Western world is that national sovereignty is undermined by powerful Jews who are manipulating politicians in the background. This was most recently stated in somewhat genteel terms by um, Mearsheimer and Walt in their book of about uh, what, 10 or 15 years ago, The Israel Lobby. But ultimately, it is the same canard that goes back to the protocols of the elders of Zion. The anti-Semitic forgery, which was created by the czarist secret police in pre-revolutionary Russia to justify the pogroms, 
and was later resurrected by the Nazi state as a tool of propaganda to justify the Holocaust and the persecution of Jews by Nazi Germany. Now, I oppose U.S. aid to Israel, just like I have opposed over the years U.S., particularly military aid, to um, all sorts of regimes which have been committing all sorts of ghastly atrocities all over the planet, going back to El Salvador back in the 1980s, Colombia in the 1990s and early 2000s, more recently Pakistan, Egypt, etc. But in those cases, you never hear the question being posed in terms of American sovereignty being undermined and loyalty to the imperial state being undermined by the client state, which is the recipient of the aid. Now, Israel gets more aid than any of the other countries I mentioned. As much you know, aid as they have received, Israel gets more. And Israel also has more of a lobbying apparatus on Capitol Hill than any of those other countries I mentioned. But it doesn't alter the fact that fundamentally the United States is the globe-spanning imperial power and Israel is the client state. And the notion that the client state is eroding the national sovereignty of the imperial power, well, let me put it in words that you can understand. Because once again, now we get to you know, where the phrase anti-Semitism can be a bit problematic. And I will point out, by the way, that there is only one other country on earth that receives U.S. aid where you sometimes begin to hear that kind of rhetoric being employed. Not nearly to the same degree as Israel, but there is one other country on earth where you do hear that kind of rhetoric being employed, where, you know, this country has become too powerful and it's, you know, it's controlling politicians on Capitol Hill. And that's Saudi Arabia. And it is very telling that these are both Semitic countries and that a lot of the same stereotypes which apply to Jews also apply to Arabs. They're undermining national sovereignty. They're arrogant. They control too much money. They have too much influence, et cetera, et cetera. So there is, you know, a grain of truth to this argument that you sometimes hear that, uh, you know, um, anti-Semitism shouldn't just apply to Jews because Arabs are also Semites. There's a grain of truth there. And again, there's a sort of a fundamental unity between the kind of ugly stereotypes which apply to Jews and ugly stereotypes which apply to Arabs. But nonetheless, the phrase anti-Semitism is the one which has been historically used to mean hatred and suspicion of Jews. And please don't blame Jews for that because we did not invent the phrase. The phrase was not invented by Jews. The phrase was invented by anti-Semites, particularly Wilhelm Marr, prominent German anti-Semitic writer of a little more than a century ago. And too often, this point about how Arabs are also Semites is raised merely to dismiss the concern of Jew hatred or to derail the conversation about Jew hatred. But I also recognize that the accusation of anti-Semitism has been weaponized by the state of Israel and its supporters to delegitimize any criticism of Israel. This is obvious. And it is one of the things which has, you know, um, led to the knee-jerk reaction that you often get, particularly from people on the left, 
to the accusation of anti-Semitism. So let me put it in terms which you can more easily understand, perhaps, or which are going to, you know, bypass that knee-jerk reaction to the phrase anti-Semitism. Framing the question, not first and foremost in terms of human rights and self-determination for the Palestinians, but allegiance to a foreign government, which is being demanded of U.S. politicians, is not only anti-Semitism, it is xenophobia, and it is America first nationalism. I hope that those are terms which you can all understand. And maybe you will begin to recognize that anti-Semitism is inextricably linked to xenophobia and America first nationalism, and it is a manifestation, one manifestation, along with Islamophobia, of xenophobia and America first nationalism. So it doesn't matter that Omar's allegiance to a foreign country construction was not explicitly targeted at Jews, per se, because the propaganda or the slur or the trope, to use the phrase, the the word which is um, popular at the moment, in common usage at the moment, is not only of the dual loyalty of Jews, but the Jews are undermining national sovereignty by demanding dual loyalty of non-Jews and of the politicians that run the country. It's the propaganda trope of the Jewish puppet master. And it is linked not only to the slur against the Jews that goes all the way back to the protocols of the elders of Zion, but it is also linked to the deep xenophobic tradition in American political culture which goes all the way back to George Washington, who in the final speech of his presidency warned against the, quote, insidious wiles of foreign influence. So I want to make clear here that while I am not a dual loyalist by any stretch of the imagination, neither am I an American loyalist. I'm not a dual loyalist. I am a zero loyalist. I have no loyalty to Israel, and I have no loyalty to the United States of America. My loyalty is to principles and values. Now, some of those principles and values, for certain historical reasons, are articulated in the Constitution of the United States, particularly in the first Ten Amendments in the Bill of Rights. Not so much in the uh, articles of the document itself. But to the extent that I have any loyalty to the Constitution, my loyalty is to those principles, not to the documents per se. Now, in terms of ethnic communities and political entities, I feel a certain loyalty to New York City. (laughs) I certainly have more of a a heartfelt attachment to New York City than I do to the United States of America. And obviously, I feel some loyalty to the Jewish community of New York City and the United States and the world. But that is not the same thing I hasten to emphasize as the state of Israel, nor is it my only loyalty. Even on the ethnic level, I'm actually, to the extent that this matters, and it should really be completely irrelevant to the discussion, I'm half Jewish, so to speak, and half Italian. I feel as much loyalty to my Italian half as I do to my Jewish half. And I also identify extremely strongly as a bicyclist, as a progressive 
as an anarchist, as a New Yorker, as much as I identify as a Jew. But I make no apologies whatsoever for identifying as a Jew. And I should also add, by the way, as a secular Jew and as an ethnic Jew, not as a religious Jew. Because I also identify strongly as an atheist, and there is no contradiction there. And if you think there is a contradiction there, you do not understand Jewish identity. Now let's go back a little bit further. A few weeks before the most recent outrage over Ilan Omar was the previous one where uh, she made her famous It's All About the Benjamins Baby comment on Twitter. And then when she was called out on this once again by Batya Ungar Sargon, also on Twitter, who asked, would love to know who Elon <coughs> thinks is paying American politicians to be pro-Israel, though I think I can guess. <laughs> she responded, APAC, exclamation point. And what's particularly annoying me about the, uh, the whole to-do over this little exchange is that when Omar made her all about the Benjamins baby comment, it was by way of retweeting a tweet from Glenn Greenwald, who wrote, GOP leader Kevin McCarthy threatens punishment for Elon Omar and Rashida Tlaib over their criticisms of Israel. It is stunning how much time U.S. political leaders spend defending a foreign nation, defending a foreign nation, even if it means attacking free speech rights of Americans. And all of the outrage over this was directed against Ilan Omar and her all about the Benjamins baby comment. None, and I mean none of the outrage, walking away from this whole thing scot-free was Glenn Greenwald, who in his original tweet, which was retweeted by Omar, again, posed the problem in terms of defending a foreign nation, posing the entire question in xenophobic and nationalist terms, once again. And this is Glenn Greenwald, who I have repeatedly called out for engaging in open apologetics for Donald Trump, doing everything he can to, you know, smear the Russia investigation as a vicious assault on his presidency and complaining of a campaign to delegitimize Trump by the deep state, quote-unquote, and has repeatedly been invited onto Fox News to spew this line. All right, he's the one who started this whole mess by tweeting the problematic tweets that Omar cluelessly retweeted. And what he said with his line about, you know, defending a foreign nation was actually far more egregious than Omar's added quips. Yet none of the outrage has been directed at him. So Greenwald got this whole ugly little ball rolling over a month ago now with this tweet that frames the pressure on Omar in xenophobic terms. Politicians loyal to a foreign country are silencing Americans. And he doesn't even get called out for it. All of the hostility has been directed against the Somali-American Muslim woman in the hijab and none of it against Glenn Greenwald. But, you know, I'll point out that isn't it uh, ironic that Israel seems to be the one issue that turns habitually America-bashing leftists into super patriots. What's up with that? 
And then people have also recalled that uh, even though this was a few years ago now, uh, you know, it's been um, recollected in the more recent controversies that Omar also tweeted, uh, you know, that Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel. So once again, you know, mouthing, if cluelessly, and I really do think that this is, you know, just rhetoric that that Omar has been hearing all of her life, that she's just kind of cluelessly repeating, perhaps not even cognizant of its implications. But, you know, the implication is, once again, you know, the Jewish puppet master behind the scenes who's deceiving the world. And I have to point out the irony here. And here my criticism is directed directly at you, Elon Omar. You have to realize that by engaging in this propaganda, you are making the proverbial noose for your own neck. If a brown-skinned woman in a hijab in contemporary racist Islamophobic America doesn't get how she is legitimizing forces that threaten her with such nationalist rhetoric, well, you've really got to think it through more, Omar. I'm sorry, you really do. This dual loyalty canard, which is used against Jews, is also used against Muslims. You hear over and over from figures on the right that a Muslim can't actually be a good American because, you know, their, their true loyalty is always going to be the Sharia. I mean, the rhetoric is practically identical. You know, you hear over and over again that, you know, you can't trust those Jews because of, you know, their um, secret doctrine of Hasbara. And similarly, you can't trust those Muslims because of their secret doctrine of tekiyah. I mean, it's almost identical stigmatization. How can you possibly miss it? And in fact, in the midst of all of this hoopla about Omar and her allegiance to a foreign government comment, Fox News commentator Janine Pirro used exactly the same trope, the same stigma against Omar herself. Quote, Think about it. Omar wears a hijab. Is her adherence to this Islamic doctrine indicative of her adherence to Sharia law, which in itself is antithetical to the United States Constitution? So it's practically identical propaganda. I do not understand for the life of me how you can oppose one without opposing the other. But apparently this puts me in an extremely small minority, frustratingly. And yet both of these tropes are being mainstreamed with terrifying rapidity. (sighs) In the aftermath of the whole flap about Omar, it came to light that a representative of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign questioned whether, quote, the American Jewish community has a dual allegiance to the state of Israel, unquote. uh, There was a woman by the name of uh, Belaine Sisa. She later apologized for it. And that brings us to uh, the whole question of apologies. Now, obviously, I am critical of Omar's comments, and I don't feel that she should be above criticism on these comments, quite obviously. (laughs) Acknowledging the double standard on this whole question, as I have, the double standard doesn't let her off the hook. And if you're going to be a member of Congress, you have to expect to come under some scrutiny and criticism for what you say. That said, this whole tendency of resting, humiliating apologies out of Omar or anybody else who makes an off-color statement in this regard, 
is a part of the dystopia, which makes the whole environment even more toxic and ironically just plays into the stereotype of, you know, these all-powerful Jews who lord it over everybody else. So I also need to make clear here that I opposed the sanctioning of Omar, which, again, was just a part of the whole pathological dynamic and was utterly counterproductive. Now, finally, the resolution that was passed by the House in response to the whole affair seems to have been a, um, a compromise one that ultimately Omar and her supporters came around to um, embracing, which mentioned anti-Semitism as well as Islamophobia. And some people have said that, you know, this is uh, inappropriate because it's kind of, uh, you know, like an all lives matter approach that when you're talking about anti-Semitism, you should keep the, uh, the focus on anti-Semitism. And generally, I agree with that, except that in this case, you know, Omar herself has been unjustly stigmatized as a Muslim. And that's also a part of the equation that needs to be taken into consideration. So perhaps that whole question, the question of the resolution, was ultimately resolved satisfactorily. Just a few more things to point out here. Some inconvenient facts that a lot of progressives aren't going to want to look at. No less a personage than David Duke, the white supremacist, open white supremacist and former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, has emerged among Elon Omar's defenders, writing on Twitter, quote, Elon Omar is now the most important member of the U.S. Congress. I made this provocative statement because the worst enemy of the USA, Europeans, and the Middle East, and the whole world, and the true enemy of peace are the Zionist tyrants who rule media and politics. Sadly, this 100-pound girl <laughs> has more guts than any white member of Congress. In the midst of all of this ugliness, a little news story that went practically unnoticed, apart from local media and the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, I don't even believe they got any coverage, but a yeshiva in upstate New York was set on fire and spray-painted with swastikas in the town of White Sulphur Springs. And here's another little news clip from Norway, of all places, where this month there was a flap when the... Uh, Attorney General of Norway, Tor Askel Bush, ruled that a, um, a comment by a, uh, a Muslim rapper, Kaveh Kolardi, at a public event, which ironically had been called to uh, promote multiculturalism and coexistence, <laughs> he said from the stage, after wishing the audience a happy Eid, went on to ask if any were Jews, and when no one reacted, he said, fucking Jews, quote-unquote, and then quickly followed it up with just joking, as if that makes it all right. And the Attorney General of Norway ruled this month that this statement was not going to be sanctioned under Norwegian law because it was, quote-unquote, legitimate criticism of Israel. All right, now this brings me to another point, which really eats me alive, that uh, in response to such controversies, you hear over and over from people on the left that criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitism, or anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. And, of course, this is a statement that I strongly agree with. And the recent moves, both in this country and in Europe, to enshrine in law the notion that criticism of Israel 
or anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism is extremely alarming and is to be forthrightly opposed, urgently opposed. And I was very happy to see the statement which was put out by a coalition of something like 30 progressive Jewish organizations with a Jewish Voice for Peace at the lead, opposing this legal conflation of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. I was extremely heartened to see that. And the people who were dissenting, particularly the progressive Jews, who were dissenting from these legal moves, need to be heard from very, very urgently. That said, if you are going to draw a distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, you have to be serious about opposing actual anti-Semitism. Just as, uh, you know, we can't allow defenders of Israel to reflexively use the accusation of anti-Semitism to deflect criticism of Israel. We cannot allow the accusation of the weaponization of the charge of anti-Semitism to be used to deflect criticism of actual anti-Semitism. Do you follow this? And obviously, things are completely out of whack when the phrase fucking Jews, quote-unquote, can be dismissed as legitimate criticism of Israel, quote-unquote. I mean, this is, uh, you know, akin to George Bush's approach to the whole question of torture, merely defining it out of existence by calling it enhanced interrogation. Our, problem, our, our response to uh, the problem of anti-Semitism is merely to define it out of existence and to call anything, no matter how ugly, mere criticism of Israel. And if there's some ambiguity about Elon Omar's comments, there certainly isn't any ambiguity about those of Kava Kalardi. Fucking Jews is not legitimate criticism of Israel. And if it was any other ethnicity in the world, progressives would not be confused on this question. So I say this as an anti-Zionist. And I say this as someone who supports a cutoff of USA to Israel and someone who supports boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel. That if our anti-Zionism is to have any legitimacy whatsoever, we have to get serious about opposing anti-Semitism. And as a zero loyalist, not a dual loyalist, but as a zero loyalist, I say down with nationalism, for an anti-Zionism that is rooted in solidarity with the Palestinians, not America first loyalty. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Anybody has any comments? I'd be happy to hear from you all. Be in touch. Leave a comment. Check out my website, countervortex.org. Think about it. That's all that I ask. And rant on you next time.